I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, folks. Good to be with you again. Uh, my name's Chris. For those of you who don't know me, I've been here once before. And uh, it's my joy this morning to uh, share something from God's Word this morning. So we're going to look at Psalm 121 in a few moments. Um, before uh, I do that, I want to tell you about a journey that I had. Um, this journey was far from being uh, not offendful. Um, I was about 16 years old. I was up in the Moor Mountains on my uh, Duke of Edinburgh Bronze Award. I never advanced to silver or gold, and you might understand why after I tell you this story. Um, I was with the Boys Brigade, and uh, on the first day, and I have to take responsibility for this because I was the leader of the group, um, I managed to uh, lead our group through the wrong valley in the mountain, or the wrong saddle of the mountain. Uh, we ended up way off course. Uh, sort of as we were then taking our detour to get to camp that night. Um, one of the guys from the, the team just so happened to stumble upon a quite a marshy bog. He got his uh, foot or his whole leg stuck in this bog up to about his knee. Uh, we had to dig him out uh, of this bog. Eventually that night we, we got to camp, pitched our tents, cooked some food, uh, got in their sleeping bags, admired the stars for a little bit. Went off to sleep longing for a, a trouble-free day, a trouble-free journey the next day. And we got up and uh, all was going well at about lunchtime. We were up between uh, two mountains having lunch when one of the guys, for some reason, I don't know why you would ever do this, decided he wanted to cook some sausages for lunch. He gets his little stove out, he gets his pan out. I went over the other side of the stone wall just to sit in the shade for a bit. You could smell the sausages sizzling and coming up over the wall. All of a sudden, you hear this almighty scream. The guy had managed to uh, knock a stove over. The pan spilt onto his leg. The boiling fat oil threw his tracksuit onto his skin. Oh. Thankfully, there was a pond or something up uh, close by. We were able to have a constant source of water to be able to run, get him some water. And our panic, you know, <laughs> you don't listen really in first aid class. <laughs> what do you do? Uh, me and another guy ran off to get help. We knew where our next uh, checkpoint was going to be. Uh, the leaders would be there. So we thought, let's go and let's just get some help. We came back, found the guy actually in the pond, <laughs> the guy lifted him up and put him in the cold water to try and relieve some of the pain. Some journeys are just like that, aren't they? They're eventful, they're far from being trouble free. We desperately need help on them. And I'm sure you've been on a journey like that before in your life. Um, sometimes we even use this uh, metaphor of journey to describe life itself, the journey of life. 
And you know from experience that it's far from being trouble-free. Whether you're a person of faith this morning or not, you may be just considering these things, you know as much as I do that life is far from being trouble-free. We can experience physical trouble, emotional trouble, we can experience relational trouble or even financial trouble. Whether that's sickness or pain or death, stress or grief or depression, fights and fallouts or wars, disappointments, failures and uncertainties, or perhaps it's just the grind of daily life that's wearing us down. We go over the wrong mountains and get lost. We stumble in the bogs and get stuck. We spill the pan and we get burnt. Trouble comes. Trouble comes, and even what can cause us, and I think Dave picked up in in his prayer this morning, that can cause us stress and anxiety, is the thought of trouble coming. The threat. Something might go wrong here. The what-ifs. The what-ifs. And um, so we face this journey. And the Bible also uses this sort of metaphor of journey to describe the Christian life. In his book, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson describes two ways to view ourselves as Christians. He says one would be disciple. We follow Jesus. We're apprentices of Jesus. We're learners of Jesus. The other is pilgrim. Pilgrim. We're on a journey. Hebrews 11 picks up on this image of Christians being on a journey. He talks about them seeking a city that God has built. They're setting out for a homeland. They're desiring a better country, a heavenly home. And these verses in Hebrews 11 remind us that this world is not our home. You and I are strangers, exiles, travelers. We're on a journey. We're going somewhere great, by the way. Revelation 21 paints this picture of our destination. We're journeying to this brand new creation. Talks about there in that new creation being a new city, a new Jerusalem. All this beautiful language is used of the most precious stuff of the day to convey to us that this is going to be beyond our wildest dreams, this city and this place. God himself is going to live there with us. We're going to enjoy God's presence forever. God's people are going to be there. And we're going to worship and celebrate and feast and live and work in a world where there's no more tears and no more pain. We will be home. You know, but until that day comes, folks, we're going to go over the wrong mountain and get lost. We're going to stumble upon bogs and get stuck. And we're going to spill the pan and get burnt. And we'll even face the potential threat of all those things happening as well. And that's where, if you want to turn to Psalm 121, Psalm 121 is so helpful for us. It's part of the Psalms, this songbook of scripture. And you might even notice the title of verse 121, Song of Ascents. This psalm makes up 15 psalms from a Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And these were special songs that would have been sung by faithful Hebrew pilgrims as they were on a journey. Three times a year, they would have, faithful Hebrews would have traveled up to Jerusalem to worship, celebrate, meet with God, 
There was once in spring the Feast of Passover. You might have heard of that before. There was once in early summer they traveled up for the Feast of Pentecost. And then at autumn time they traveled up for the Feast of Tabernacles. Picture them leaving their homes, having to leave their work for a bit, to trust God enough to leave their work for two, or two weeks or so. They would have packed up their stuff, gathered up their supplies, and set out for a journey to a city. They journeyed there to meet with God. God's presence was believed to be in the temple in those days. They went there to be with God's people. They worshipped and they celebrated and they feasted at God's temple. See how that's kind of like us? We're on this journey. We're traveling to a far better city. God's presence is going to be there in a far better way. All of God's people from all the nations of the world are going to be there, not just one nation. And we're going to enjoy God forever. We're going to worship and feast and celebrate and live and work in this place. So Psalm 121 is our song too. It's this pilgrim song for us as we go on this journey. We face our trouble. We face our threats as they would have done on their physical journey. And as this song was designed and written and inspired by the Spirit, I believe, to lift the spirits of those pilgrims, it's meant to do the same for us today. It's meant to lift our spirits as we sort of consider the truths of this song. So we're going to do that now. And my hope, very simply, this morning is that I'm going to share three big truths from this uh, song today. And I just hope they lift your spirits. I hope they lift your spirits. So here goes, number one, if you're jotting down a few notes. We have a God who really helps. We have a God who really helps. You see that there in verses one and two? I'm reading from the ESV, but it's very similar. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Okay, what's, what's he getting at here? Whenever I read this sort of, you know, early Christian a few years, I lift up my eyes to the hills. I initially thought this is what it meant. I lift up my eyes to the majestic and mighty hills. And wow, look at them. They're so tall and strong. And they remind me of God who's mighty and majestic too. And therefore, I'm going to go to him for help. That's how I would have kind of took it at the start. Or if you listen to people who talk about this psalm, they often sometimes take it like this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. And they're a really scary place. And they're full of lots of trouble. And sort of as I lift up my eyes to the hills, I think of all the threats and dangers there. And I'm going to go to God for help. I want to propose to you that the psalmist is maybe getting at something else here this morning. What else was up in the hills? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? We know as we read the accounts of Israel's history at this time, the Israelites were far from being faithful to God at times. They often abandoned the worship of the true God to go and worship other gods. Where was this idolatry practiced? Up in the hills. Up in the hilltops. Shrines were set up 
Sacrifices were made. Sacred prostitutes were available. You needed some help. You want some protection for your journey. You want some security. You want some blessing. Tell you what, there's plenty of offer up in the hills from the idols of the time. Go there. And so I think these lines are meant to maybe be more taken like this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. And I know that they're full of other gods. And I know that they're full of other idols who promise me things, who promise me life and health and blessing and security, who promise me everything I need in life. But that's not where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. Oh, and by the way, he's more than able to help because he, he made heaven and earth. So verses 1 and 2, it's about who or what do you run to and depend on for help in life? It's a bit like, and I'm using that word a bit like very loosely here, uh, the movie Creed 2. Haven't seen it, have you? So if you don't know of the movie, you must have heard of the original Rocky movies, haven't you? Yeah, you've heard of Rocky, haven't you? So, uh, well, Creed is the, the spin-off of these Rocky movies where Rocky trains in the first Creed movie the son of his former enemy who turned his friend in the first movie's Creed. Well, the son is called Adonis Creed. And in the first movie, sort of Rocky trains him up, blah, blah, blah. And he fights the fight and he wins. That's how it goes. Well, in Creed 2, very dramatic, uh, Creed gets challenged to fight the son of the Russian boxer who killed his father. Very confusing. We might need to draw a family tree up for that there. But you kind of get the gist, don't you? Rocky thinks this is a bad idea because this Russian guy, he's built like an absolute tank, you know, can break breeze blocks with his fists, etc. things like that there. Rocky thinks it's a bad idea. Creed, however, wants to fight him. And off he runs and gets another trainer. He goes to another trainer who promises to help him. It all falls apart. It's absolutely thrashed. Creed is a broken man physically and emotionally in the middle of the movie. Rocky crosses paths with him again. Rocky goes to Rocky for help and Rocky agrees to help this time. Cue the dramatic music. Cue the intense sort of training scene. Cue the lots of running and sweat and all that scenes, cue those things. And you know how the rest of the movie goes because they're basically all the same, aren't they? He ends up fighting the guy at the end and he wins. But you got this picture in, in this story of who do I go to for help? And off he runs to one person and that fails. And off he goes to Rocky, the heavyweight champion of the world. And he's able to help. And this is the challenge of these verses. Who do we run to when we're facing the threat of trouble like a tank or uh, actually in the ring with trouble that is built like a tank? Where do we go to? The bias of the human heart is always to try to live independently of God. It's always to go, God 
I don't really think I need you. I need these other things far more in life. They're my true help. They're my ultimate source of help. They're the things I really need. That's the challenge of this verse. Are we going to go to other things? Are we going to just try and get by by ourselves? Are we going to place our hopes in just other people? Not discounting the fact that God helps us through other people, but sometimes we just forget about God and think, that's the person I really need in my life, or that's the person I really need in my life. Are we going to go to some latest book on mindfulness or are we going to run the drink or drugs or shopping or eating or entertainment or holidays to all just try to give us the help we need to get through in life? Or are we going to run to God himself and pray the simplest of prayers? God help me. This verse is tremendously encouraging today. God is there as an available source of help for you today. No matter what you're facing, he is there, not just as the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, <laughs> he's the creator of the world. And he can help. He can help in whatever you're facing today. We have a God that's, who can really help. That's what verses 1 and 2 are all about. You're going to go to the idols in the hills. They make all their promises of help and security and promise and protection. Or are you going to go to God? We have a God who really helps. Okay, number two. and uh, We have a God who never sleeps. We have a God who never sleeps. Do you see that there? He will not let, verse three, your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So this journey would have taken some days, depending on where they set off from. The pilgrims who needed to sleep contrasted the lad is the fact that God doesn't need to sleep. And that can lift our spirits in a few ways. Here's the first way. The fact that God never needs to sleep means that God has endless strength. You ever had young kids and they, they, they sort of, uh, they're running around the house and they're not going down to sleep and then, all of a sudden they just collapse and you find them sort of sleeping, sort of, you know. They're fur. <laughs> Thanks for laughing at my jokes, son, you know. <laughs> Their face are pressed up against something, you know, they just absolutely collapse. Pure exhaustion, maybe you're the same. You know, you get to the end of the day after a tough week and you're just exhausted. It's because you've got limits. Your strength has limits. Contrast a lot. Can we imagine a God, this morning God's word says it's true, who does not have any limits when it comes to his strength. Okay? Endless strength, never weary, never tired, never exhausted, never just... His endless strength. And I love it when Isaiah says that he gives strength to the faint, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. God has endless strength today to share with you. It also lifts our spirits in, 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 in the sense that the fact that God never sleeps, I think, tells us that he knows every detail. He has endless strength and he knows every detail. Um, you come home after a busy week at work, it's Friday night. You put a movie on and sort of five minutes in, you just sense sort of the, the head nodding 
and uh, you know, 10 minutes in, you're starting to breathe a bit heavier, and sort of 15 minutes in, you're out, you're sort of sleeping on the couch, and then all of a sudden, there's some dramatic part in the movie, and there's a big bang or something like that there, and you sort of wake up, and you're startled, and, and you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue who's who. You don't have a clue what's going on. You don't have a clue of anything in the movie. Now, the fact that God doesn't sleep doesn't means this. When the bangs come in, in our life, God's not going to, you know, sort of rub, picture language here of God. God's not sort of rubbing his eyes, all bleary-eyed, looking down in our life, going, uh, what's, what on earth is going on in Chris's life at the minute? I don't have a clue. I didn't know what's going on there. That brings comfort to me. God knows every detail of my life. You know, even down, and there may be a few less of them these days, to the very number of hairs on my head. God knows the very details of my life. He knows every detail. And then lastly, how it lifts our spirits is that surely the fact that God never sleeps means that he hears every cry. His endless strength. He knows every detail. He hears every cry. Do you remember that story of Elijah? Uh, whenever he sort of throws down this spiritual challenge to the prophets of Baal, who was an idol that often the Israelites went off and worshipped instead of the true God and in those days, he throws down this challenge to them. They meet on top of this mountain called Mount Carmel. And Elijah says to these prophets, hey, let's build two altars, okay? And we'll place a sacrifice in those altars. You call out to Baal, and I'll call out to the true God. And whatever God sends down far from heaven, he's the true God. Everybody signs up to the showdown. The prophets of Baal go first. They start crying out to Baal. They start getting up to all sorts of antics in an attempt to get Baal to hear them. And the text says to us that Elijah starts to poke fun at them. It's great. He says to them, At noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's God. He's musing, or he's away off to the bathroom, or he's on the journey, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And the fun that he was poking at these prophets was, your God's not listening to you. And here's all the reasons. And one of them is, he's sleeping. Needs to be woken up. Can't hear your cry because he's having his afternoon doze. That's not our God. As, as we come to our God, and whether it's in the night hours, or the early hours of the morning, and we cry out to him, this picture language of a God who never sleeps lifts our spirits it teaches us that any moment we cry to him, he's going to hear. He's going to hear that cry. This poor man has cried out at times, and the Lord has heard him and delivered him out of all his fears. He hears every cry. I pray the fact that God never sleeps and has endless strength and knows every detail and hears every cry lifts our spirits for the journey today. One last truth to consider this morning, and this is linked to the fact that God uh, sleeps, never sleeps as well, but if, I thought it comes through so much, let's make it a whole point. So here it is, number three, we have a God who always keeps, okay? Who always keeps, okay? He really helps, he never sleeps, and he always keeps. 
If you look at verses 3 to 8, just scan down them. Even verses 5 to 8. Keep will be mentioned a few times in the NIV version. And then also what's mentioned is this idea of God watching over you. God will keep you. He's your keeper. Or God will watch over you. It's actually the same word in the text. So the ESV translates it as the same. So you see keep coming through again and again. So verses 5 to 8, I think, let's count up how number of times you get this idea. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I think there's about six times in the text that the same idea of God keeping you coming up again and again. It's a word that means um, and, uh, this idea that God uh, guards you, that God preserves you, that God protects you, that God holds on to you. You see that protection image there in verse 5? God's like a shade on our right hand. You know, so we go to the beach and, um, well, sometimes we need it for the wind up in Port Stewart, but imagine you're somewhere warm, okay? And you get a shade to protect you from the sun's rays. God is this protection in our life. He's going to protect us and preserve us from the sun by day, the moon by night, and from all evil. Dangers we might face during the day, dangers we might face during the night, from all evil. But surely it can't mean, surely it can't mean, this is great God. God's going to protect me from all evil. I'm not going to have a heart. I'm not even going to stub my toe for the, for, for the next 40 years in my, in my life. God's going to keep me from all harm. And it's going to be absolutely great. Surely it couldn't mean that. The very fact that this is a psalm about needing help from God would suggest, no, that's not going to be the case. We know from the whole other, sort of, if we take the whole range of scripture, it's very honest about our pilgrim journey, about our Christian life. Uh, when you face trials, James says, not if, when you face trials. Think about it, it's impossible to walk, to use the image of the text. It would be impossible to go on a journey during the middle of the day and not experience the rise of the sun. You're going to feel its heat. No, this verse is not saying, look, you're never going to stub your toe on your way to heaven. No. It's saying, look, you're, you are going to need help. At times you're going to experience the sun by day and you're going to experience the moon by night. And there was an idea back in those days that too much of the moon would send you a bit mad. Okay, so that's where this sort of idea comes from, being protected from the moon. So you're going to experience sort of the sun by day and the moon by night. But no natural force you encounter, nothing in all God's creation will keep you from reaching the city, will keep you from reaching your destination. God will keep you and protect you and guard you and preserve you and make sure you get to the city to worship. It's also saying that you're going to have evil, and you're going to have brushes with evil on this journey. You're going to have a spiritual enemy 
that you're going to face at times, but no supernatural evil force you encounter during the journey will keep you from reaching the city. God will keep you from all evil. He'll protect you and guard you and preserve you and make sure you get there. So the point is not that we're never going to experience sun or moon or evil, but that nothing, no accident, distress, trouble, nothing we face will have power over us and be able to stop us from stop God from accomplishing his purposes in us and bringing us into his kingdom. I haven't heard this text saying for a, a bit, but remember whenever you were, when I say when I was young, this would be a test to see if any of the younger people in the, in the room have heard this saying before. If somebody, like you were playing Donkey, okay? Donkey was a game we played before we had computers, kids, okay? When you just very simply like, threw a ball to people, okay? It was a great game. You kind of threw a ball to people, and like, if this person dropped it, they got D, and then if they dropped it again, you got O, and then N, and then K, and then E, and then Y, and then whoever dropped the ball the most times, six times, was the donkey, and they lost the game. And do you ever sort of use the phrase sort of whenever you were playing donkey and someone like 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 the ball just slipped through their fingers and so they would have been described as having like butterfingers? Who remembers butterfingers? Yeah, I remember butterfingers. There's some people who remember butterfingers. And the idea here is that okay, here's God and he he's got his people and and, and he's with us on this journey. He he's not we're not gonna slip through his Fingers. There's no butter fingers when it comes to God. He's going to hold on to us tightly and keep us. Or here's another picture of it as well. I'm not an American football fan, so apologies if anybody is and the references are wrong in here. But you imagine, you know the game of American football where they have to get the ball into the end zone? Well, I want you to imagine the perfect American football team. And here they have the quarterback throws the ball so or whoever throws the ball to the quarterback, he hands it off to the linebacker. He brings it in tightly, doesn't he? And, no, and then he gets hit by all the opponent, opponent teams who try to take him down and get him to lose the ball. And at times, there, there's, there's times whenever in, in that scene where the American footballer who's holding the ball gets whacked by another opposing team play, player and the ball gets fumbled out of the, out of the player's hand. Well, I want you to imagine the perfect American football team where they never fumble the ball. Okay, so here they go, gets the ball. No matter what the team gets whacked by by the other team, this ball stays into them, tight to them. They never fumble it. They never drop it. They get it to the end zone every time. And that's the idea here of God's keeping and God's protecting. Here we are in his hand. Don't think God's going to fumble his people. No matter what hits you, no matter what comes against you, no matter how many times you're whacked, God is not going to fumble you. God's going to hold on to you. He's going to get you to the end zone. That's what this is getting at here. That's meant to lift our spirits. So don't have the idea. Here's another picture. Often people think being a Christian is me holding on to God with my fingertips. Like, you know, like you'd hold on to the edge of a cliff and I'm nearly about to fall. That's not how the picture of the Christian life. The picture of the Christian life is God holding firmly on to us. And he's going to keep us. No matter what.
So Eugene Peterson writes this in, in, in that same book I quoted earlier on. The only serious mistake we can make when illness comes, when anxiety threatens, when conflict disturbs our relationships with others, is to conclude that God has gotten bored looking after us and has shifted his attention to a more exciting Christian, or that God has become disgusted with our meandering obedience and decided to let us fend for ourselves for a while. No way. Each step we walk, each breath we breathe, we know we are preserved by God. We know we are accompanied by God. We know that we are ruled by God. And therefore, no matter what doubts we endure or what accidents we experience, the Lord will keep us. He will guard our very life. So I pray today that, that this song lifts your spirits. It lifts your spirits as we journey to a better city, to enjoy God's presence in a far better way than those first pilgrims would ever enjoy it, to be with God's people, not just from one nation, but from all the nations of the world that Jesus is gathering to make his people. As we journey and face trouble and potential threats on that way, to know this song's truth will lift our spirits, that you have a God who never, who, you have a God who really helps today. He's the one you can go to and say, God, I'm overwhelmed. I need your help today. He's the God who never sleeps with endless strength, who knows every detail and hears every cry. He's the God who always keeps. He's never going to fumble you. He's never going to drop you. He's going to get you there. You will make it. You will make it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these songs that stir our souls. And these moments as we just respond to your word, um, we just take these moments to say, God, you know the threat, you know the trouble, you know the anxiety this morning. God, help me. God, I'm not running to other things today. I'm looking first and foremost to you. God, be my help. And God, thank you tonight that you are this morning, that you have endless strength. Help me to rest in that. That you never sleep, that you're always watching over me, that you know everything that's going on, that you hear every cry. And God, just thank you again for this promise that you will keep us, that God... I, I can leave here confident this morning, not in my ability to keep going, but in God's ability to keep me. Thank you, God, that I can say, I will make it, not because I'm proud of my, or think my strength is great, but because, God, your strength is great and you're well able to keep your people and bring us to your home. We thank you for this, in Jesus' name.